You know, if there was a, a sort of an analogy uh, to life, I think life is like a puzzle. Now, you think about this, that uh, we go through life trying to make sense by putting the different pieces of our lives together. Every event is like a puzzle piece. And sometimes uh, individual pieces don't make a lot of sense. And maybe they don't even connect with each other. But one of the things about a puzzle is that when you look at it, there are all these random pieces. So how do you solve a jigsaw puzzle? Well, one of the ways in which you solve a jigsaw puzzle is not by looking at the pieces, but by looking at the box top. If you've ever done jigsaw puzzles, you know how important that box is. Because that box dictates and determines how those pieces fit together. And if you have the wrong box top, the pieces are not going to fit. Well, this analogy actually kind of made uh, sense when I was a youth pastor. I decided to play a little trick on my youth uh, teachers. I had a youth staff, and I decided to give them a Christmas gift. And uh, as part of my Christmas gift is each one of my youth staff got a jigsaw puzzle box. And so uh, I wrapped it all nicely and, and, and presented it to them. What they didn't know was the night before, I opened up all the jigsaw puzzles and replaced the box tops. So imagine, you know, when, when you had this beautiful scenery of this, like, scenic uh, view of, 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 like, a, you know, a wintry scene, and they open it up, it's all, like, green. Or you had this white picture on top, and it was all black inside. And it really was confusing for my staff. Because they thought something was wrong with them. And it was really something was wrong with me <laughs> for doing this to them. But the reason I did that was to illustrate the point. And it, it, eventually we all exchanged the box top. I knew which one was what. But we did that to illustrate the point is this. That oftentimes your box top determines how the pieces fit. And as I was thinking about how we close off this series, um, you know, the lesson is this. That... The place where you end is often the place where you should begin. Let me say that again. The place that you end is often where you should begin. It's what I would call backwards living. Now, as I thought about what that meant, here's what I mean by it. What if you could live your life backwards? Meaning that you knew what the end was. How would that change your present? You know, sometimes, you know, this the curiosity of living our lives backwards is actually something that is in a lot of different literature and movies. Uh, you know, many of you may have uh, read the book called Curious Case of Benjamin Button. It was made into a movie. And the story is told about an old man who was born when he was 80. And then he sort of went through life and he became younger and younger. Wouldn't it be neat if, you know, and I thought about this, as I get older, man, I wish I had this mind when I was in my 20s. Because in my mind right now, I think I'm 20, but my body feels like it's 80. Because as we get older, we, it goes the opposite way. We have wisdom, but our bodies do not cooperate, or maybe uh, we don't have the right frame of mind. Uh, there's another a movie that many of you may have uh, seen. It was called Memento. Uh, it was directed and written by Christopher Nolan, the man who did all the, the Batman movies. And it's a story told about a guy who had this brain injury, and he only remembered one day, and the day that he was living. And the way this uh, story kind of unfolded was it unfolded the story backwards. 
And so you started with the end and you sort of pieced together the very beginning. And so the end of the movie was actually the beginning. Well, this is not only an idea that is in books or in movies. Uh, even in uh, business literature, a man, uh, Stephen Covey, wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly uh, Effective People. And he says that habit number two is this. Begin with the end in mind. In other words, start at the end rather than at the beginning. And he, and he tells an interesting analogy. He says, imagine it's your 80th birthday. And all your friends and family have gathered, and they're celebrating your life. And each of them, your, your uh, you know, grandchild, your spouse, your friends, and they're all rec rec uh, sort of recounting the things that you've done. Well, he says, if you knew what you want to accomplish, then that's the way in which you should live your life. Well, you know, this is not a new concept, is it? The book in the Bible, Jesus reminds us that we need to have the same kind of perspective. As Christians, we need to live with the end in mind. And for us as Christians, here's the good news, is that God has already completed the end. In other words, the, the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second coming, is going to determine the end. And, and we live then in the light of that. And so one of the things that the early Christians did living out the Christian life was that no matter how difficult life was, they always lived in the light of the Lord's return. Uh, Jesus tells a story about the parable uh, of the talents. You guys know the story. Uh, many of you know the story. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And it was a, a man who goes on a journey. He's a very wealthy man. And he decides to leave uh, one talent with one person. And then he uh, entrusted another talent, two talents with somebody else. And five talents to, to the third person. Now, some of you, when you hear the word talent, you think about competency or giftedness. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He's actually using this analogy to talk about money. One talent, according to some scholars, is like $300,000. Not, it's not chump change. It's, it's a lot of money. And so one guy got $1.5 million. The point of that story is this, that this man went on a journey, and Jesus is using this to describe himself. But when he comes back, he expects them to make a profit. So, so the guy who has two talents doubles it. The guy who has five talents doubles it. But the guy who only has one buries it. And so when the, when the uh, wealthy man comes back, the man who buries it basically is selfish. He's not, he doesn't even want to do anything with it. The owner says, why, why don't you just put it in the bank? You could have gotten interest. Well, the point of that story is this, that, that God has already given us resources that we need to invest in for the kingdom. But there's another story is this. That Jesus was talking about how they lived their lives in the light of the king's coming. If Jesus is coming back, how does that change your life for the present? Well, while our life may not be lived backwards, we can we could probably keep in mind uh, that the Bible does give us a future orientation. Everything we do is based on what God will already accomplish. And with that, with the end in mind, it gives us confidence for how we live, need to live our lives today. Well, I want to summarize these two books in the light of that concept of living our life backwards. 
Uh, our passage today is actually the whole book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. These two books, we're just going to summarize in three key principles. Because these three things are the things that Paul reiterates. And it helps us to see, in the light of these three issues or problems that the Thessalonian church was going through, by having an end perspective, it gives us perspective on how we live in the present. Now, just to give you a quick summary of where we've been in these last five months or six months, is that the book of Thessalonians was uh, a, a, a letter that Paul wrote. It was actually the very first letter that Paul wrote. And he wrote it in Corinth. Uh, Paul went to the city of Thessalonica, which was the capital of the Macedonian Empire. Paul goes there. It's a metropolitan city. Uh, both the Jews and the Gentiles convert. They start a church. The church starts to grow. And then persecution happens. And as soon as persecution happens, uh, Paul and his colleagues are kicked out, literally, or he kicks himself out, and, and he escapes down to Corinth. And in Corinth, uh, Paul writes these two letters. And again, the significance of these two letters is, is these are the two, the first two letters that Paul wrote. And so it gives us a glimpse of what the early church was going through. And as Paul is writing these things, there are three problems that surface. One is the problem of, of suffering. The secondly, it was a problem of false teaching. And the third problem, which is a practical problem, is how do we live in the light of a secular culture? And in this, these two books, Paul answers those three things. But to answer these three questions, you have to, again, think with the end in mind. In the light of the eternal perspective, how does that affect how we deal with suffering, how, de how we deal with false teaching, and lastly, how we deal with basic Christian living. So let's take a look at this. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The first point is this. When you are persecuted, living backwards allows you to persevere. When you are persecuted, living backwards allow you, allows you to persevere. Look at this in chapter 1. He begins this letter with... Um, a thanksgiving uh, prayer in verse 2. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before God the Father, your work produced by faith. And then in verse uh, 6, he says this. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. The first thing that that the church went through was was severe suffering and we see this actually later on in chapter 2 verse 14 he says almost the exact same thing for you brothers became imitators of God's church in Judea which are in Christ Jesus you suffer for my countrymen the things the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed Jesus in other words Paul is now reminding them that as as Christians Part of our job description is suffering. Now, suffering is not a new thing. I mean, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, suffering is a part of, of life. So the question is not, are you going to suffer? All of us in, in, in life will suffer to some degree. The question is this, does suffering make sense? See, for a Christian, we see suffering very differently than what the world sees. If you have a forward orientation or what I would call backwards living, if you have the end in mind, it changes the way in which we endure and deal with suffering. 
if you're not a, a believer, most likely when you suffer, uh, you could blame God. Some people do. And even atheists who deny God's existence blame God. Or blame sort of, you know, hey, if God is uh, just or if God is fair, why would he allow suffering in the world? And so that's sort of a, a way in which we deflect our suffering. Or others just kind of painfully endure it. But what ends up happening is that if you don't have a forward perspective, is that our suffering becomes often meaningless without purpose. Think about this. If you're just going through a lot of pain in your life and there's no good that comes out of it, then, then, then really life seems very unfair. And that's the thing in this world that is that suffering is, is a part of, of everyday existence, everyday life. And even for a Christian, that's part of our existence. Now, the question is, is where does suffering begin? Well, we know that suffering began because of separation. That ultimately, that all suffering stems from our separation and rejection of God. So we go all the way back to the very beginning. We decide to rebel against God. Mankind rebels against God. And as a result of that, sin enters into the picture. And with the result of sin or the consequence of sin is death. Death, suffering, and pain is all the effect of the fall. So whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, it, it's part of just the curriculum of life. But here's where suffering um, makes sense for us as Christians. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Put suffering in perspective. He says, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. One of the things about suffering is this, that, that God has suffered as well. That because of our sin, he chose to suffer on our behalf. Not only did he choose to suffer, he chose to die on our behalf. And that's the message of the gospel. So that when we suffer, here's one of the purposes, is that we identify with God himself. That we bear his name. And so Peter reminds us, when you suffer, do not be ashamed, but praise God because you are participating with God what, of what God has experienced. But there's a, another purpose to suffering with the end in mind. And it's this, that ultimately suffering produces in us the character in which forms us into the image of Christ. And so in James chapter 1, verse uh, 2 to verse 5, it says this. Consider a pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance ultimately will result in spiritual maturity. So why does James say consider a pure joy? He's not saying Christians should just be happy with suffering. We're not masochists who just enjoy pain and suffering. But rather, we as Christians see suffering as a means to a greater end. In other words, that our suffering we can be joyful in because that suffering produces in us the characteristic that forms us into the likeness of Christ. Notice what he says here in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says the same thing. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcome the message with joy. So the reason Christians can think of suffering differently is because suffering produces in us the characteristic of Christ. And that's why we persevere. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you're going through, whether it's a loss of a job, whether it's a, uh, 
a family member uh, being diagnosed with cancer or something horrible happening in your life, or maybe even personally, where you worked hard and, 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 and you got fired, all those things are a reminder that God will use that to shape and form our character to become more like him. But there's a, a third reason we could have joy and suffering, that we can persevere. And that's based upon the nature and character of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says this, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The reason that suffering makes sense is that suffering in itself is not the entity that controls our life. But that God supersedes and oversees all the things that are happening. God even allows suffering for the purpose of his glory. And, and we have, in some sense, when we suffer, a bigger and a higher view of God. That suffering is a window to understanding God's sovereignty. You know, there's a, a, a character in the Bible named Job. And Job is actually, in the Old Testament, is one of the first books ever written. It's told a story about a man who was very wealthy, who had everything. He was a godly man who had children, who had property. He was, he, he, he was prosperous in the world sense. And there's a story, a backstory behind Job. And that backstory is set in heaven. And as the writer is describing, it's almost like a play. Uh, Satan comes to Jesus, or comes to God and says, you know, the reason this man has everything is because you protected him. I bet if you take everything away... He will curse you. And so he dares God to take his blessing away or protection away from Job. So God says, well, I don't think that's going to happen to Job. So God removes his protection. And Satan just destroys and ravishes his life. He kills off his children. All his property gets damaged. He loses everything. And physically he's infested with boils and disease. And the interesting part of that story is his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? Exactly what Satan wanted. His friends say the same thing. Why don't you just curse God and die? And at the end of the day, Job doesn't do that. Now, what's important in that story is this, that God doesn't tell Job the reason why he had to suffer. At the end of the day, he perseveres and endures the suffering. And here's the thing about the book of Job. Everything he had... It doubled at the end of his life. And so there is an interesting uh, sort of play that, that when we see God for who he is and we trust in him, that God will allow that perseverance to produce in us the maturity that we need to look more like Jesus as well as to receive the crown of life. There's a verse uh, in James that says the same thing, that blessed are those who persevere for they will receive the crown of life. And so the letter here in the Thessalonian church was to remind the Christians that what you are facing is temporal. It's limited. Don't let that limited perspective alter your future. But instead, live your life in the light of fu the future reality that God will come. And no matter how much injustice there are, social injustice, economic injustice, that Christ will come and become the ruler of rulers, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. And everything will be made right. And that's why we can persevere. That's the first major point of the story. There's a second part of the story as well. And that is this. 
that oftentimes that the suffering that the church goes through is not external. There are different types of suffering, isn't there? There's, there's physical suffering where somebody uh, uh, causes us pain or, or emotional pain. And there's that. But there's a different type of suffering, that's spiritual suffering. And that can happen because Satan infects the church with false teaching. And so in, in these two books, there are people that have come into the church and that are starting to teach things that are actually in opposition to the plan of God. And so the point of the story is this. When you're dealing with false teaching, living backwards allows you to discern truth. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, test everything. Hold on to what is good. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day of the Lord uh, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The church was being misled. There were some people that have come in, and, and, and Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, make sure you keep what is true, hold guard the truth, and test everything. But some people had come in, and they were counterfeits. They were saying, oh, you know what, Paul was actually wrong, let me tell you what was right. And they were counter, counterdicting what Paul had written, or what Paul had uh, written in the first book, and what Paul had taught. And as I thought about that, that's kind of the second major issue confronting the church. Not only are we called to persevere when we suffer, we're also called to discern truth when we are deceived. You know, the thing about discerning of truth is that's one of the other things that, the, that Jesus reminds us. Is he says, watch out for false prophets. Watch out. And he gives us great analogy. Watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. It is interesting, isn't it? How the church has always been misled. And if you think about Satan's number one strategy from all, the beginning of time, it's always deception. It's always to mislead. And, and deception is always about twisting the truth a little bit. And not necessarily going the opposite, but moving it a little bit at a time. And so when Adam and Eve, God created, God gave them this paradise, Adam decides, you know what, uh, or Satan decides, you know, Adam is, is going to deny you because I'm going to deceive him. So Satan comes and says, okay, you know what? I know you want to know God. Let me tell you how to know God. Let me give you a shortcut. And that's what deception is. Deception is always a shortcut to truth. And so Paul reminds this church, be on guard. So how do we then discern what is wrong or discern what is deceptive? And the answer to that is the word of God. The Bible is the complete revelation. It is the the book that helps us to discern what is right and what is wrong. It is our guidebook for all truth. And so we see throughout Scripture how important the Bible is to the foundation of our faith. And here's the number one problem that I see in Christians today. It's not that we don't like the Bible or, or love the Bible. The number one problem that most Christians have is that we don't know the Bible. And so we have as many versions on our Bible on our phones, and yet we are the most, one of the most biblically illiterate generations. 
And, and the way we get deceived so easily is when we don't have a full understanding of Scripture. As Scripture reminds us over and over again, the importance of the Word of God. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say evil things of me. Uh, and then he talks about the Word of God is what endures forever. Over and over again. When we learn what the Bible is, the Bible is not just a recording of some people that decided to talk about God. It is literally the words of God. It is what gives us life. And, and so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, it says this, that all scripture is inspired by God. And it's proper for teaching, correcting, uh, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that every man of God will be thoroughly equipped. So how do we discern against error? Well, the word of God is what gives us guidance for that. You know, as I think about uh, three of the sort of uh, the false gospels that dominate our culture. And one is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel sounds good because it basically says that if you follow God, he's going to make you healthy and wealthy. And so there are, there's a whole branch of people that, that, that are deceived into that. I remember when I was a, a young seminary student, I was attending Dallas Seminary. And I attended a prosperity church just once because this guy was on television. He was, we knew he was a charlatan. We knew he was a false teacher. And so I just wanted to kind of see what it was like. And I walked into the, into the church. It was literally like walking into a television studio because everything was staged. And I, and I listened and I sort of observed the people around me. And, and especially the person sitting next to me as the offering was going around. And, and, and this man, who was a false teacher, started basically asking people for money. And this uh, lady next to me, I, I, you know, I don't know how uh, wealthy she was. I, I would say well, she was probably very poor. She was writing a check. And I could see all these negative balances. And she was writing a check on faith that by putting this money into the offering, that somehow God was going to make her prosperous because that's what this guy taught. Again, that goes totally outside of, the, of Scripture. And yet Christians are not discerning with that. And as a result of that, we are easily led into that. Prosperity gospel is actually one of the fastest growing theologies in places like in South America and in Africa. Because people do not have the totality of the Word of God. And that's what Paul is warning against. The second major gospel that I think is dominant in our day and age is, is what I call the social gospel. And it's, it's popular among sort of the progressive left, which basically says that we need to solve our own problems, that, 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 that we need to enact good. Now, there's nothing wrong with being socially engaged and socially active, but if that becomes a mean, means of salvation, then there's something that's wrong. And yet there's a whole group of people that are falling in line in, into that. And so compassion trumps everything. And then there's the other side. And it's, it's what I call, so the right-wing people. It's the gospel of nationalism. How we have tied our faith into our, our culture, or how we tied our faith into our government, or into who gets elected. And nationalism is dangerous because it, it aligns God with a particular party. And again, these are people that love God, but yet do not discern God's word. And so Paul's point in these two books is this, that false teachers will come. That you need to be discerning. You need to have the total understanding of the Word of God. Because the Word of God becomes the basis for everything. 
As one writer says, sound doctrine originates with God, is recorded in the word of God, is consistent with the revelation of God, and leads people to both spiritual health and godly living. False doctrine originates with men or demons, is foreign to the word of God, is inconsistent with the whole revelation of God, and leads to spiritual weakness and ungodly living. Somebody said, how do we know if something is true or not? Well, one indicator is how is the life affected when we follow that teaching? Does it produce godliness or does it produce the opposite of that? So that's the second major point. The totality, the, the, the forward living is this, that God has given us a complete record. And here's the good news about the Bible is that the Bible is the complete record of God. There's no other book in any religion, in any faith that describes the beginning and the end as the Bible. The Alpha and the Omega. We have the complete picture of all of human history. And here's the good news at the very end is that Jesus becomes victorious. The third major issue confronting the church is this. That when you're living in a secular world, lives, living backward reminds us that Jesus is our model. That the model for living is Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians... One of the challenges for the church was this. Yes, it's good to have theology, and we should study it. But here's the theology without practice leads to ungodly living. Or it, it, it contradicts what we believe. And the greatest problem in our church, I believe, is not that we don't have the right theology as evangelicals. is that we don't have the right practice of our theology. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4... One of the, the admonitions that God gives is if you are a Christian, you need to set yourself apart as Christians. And the model for Christian living is not the world, is not other, just other believers, but the model for Christian living is Jesus himself. And so for us as Christians, it's easy, isn't it? To tell people what is wrong with the, their behavior. But that's not the point that, that Paul is making. He's not starting with what people are doing wrong. He's stating what we should be doing right. And that becomes the testimony to the world around us. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, some Christians were living lives that were counter to ministry or to Christian effectiveness. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul is making this point, that the authority of living our lives is already based in, in God's word. And as we know him, and as we love him, and as we serve him, it, that becomes the witness and the testimony to the world around us. When you study Christian history, one of the things that you begin to notice is that the early Christians were very different than their Roman counterparts. And what set Christianity apart, it also caused persecution because a lot of the people were threatened by it, but it also brought an attraction to the gospel. Uh, in, the, in the second century, uh, between 120 A.D. to 200, there was a, a Christian document that was written called the Epistle to Diognetus. And it's written by a man who was describing what Christians were like in the first century, second century. It's pretty remarkable. 
He says this, there is, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live separate cities of their own, speak their own special dialect, nor practice any an eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has been de de determined, conformed to the local uh, usage in clothing, diet, and other. In other words, Christians are like everybody else. But then he says this, though destiny have placed them in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend these laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned, and yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, having abundance in all things. They repay curses with blessing and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers. He goes on later to describe how these band of Christians are living their life of generosity. In terms of sexual purity, they're, they're not, uh, they share their house, but they don't share their bed. It's, it's pretty remarkable. These Christians have been transformed. These were normal people that, has, that, that have radically conformed to a different model, a different way of living. And what Paul is reminding us in these two books, in First and Second Thessalonians, that the ultimate witness to the world around us is when Christians begin to look more like Jesus. You know what sanctification is? Sanctification, we, we use the theological word, which means to set yourself apart to holiness. A practical definition of sanctification is really this, that a person is sanctified when they look in the mirror and do they see more of Jesus and less of you. And I think when people see more of Jesus, the real Jesus, it becomes more attractive. I think the problem with our generation sometimes is they see Jesus, they see a false image of Jesus. A political Jesus, a social Jesus, a prosperous Jesus. Tim Keller argues that what is going to be a witness to the world around us is what he calls a new kind of urban Christians. Christians should be a dynamic counterculture. It is not enough for Christians to simply live as individuals in the city. They must live as a particular kind of community. Christians are called to live in an alternate city within every earthly city. The kind of community Keller has in mind is one in which money, sex, and power are used for the glory of God. Not selfishly, but sacrificially. Because that's exactly the way Jesus lived. That instead of having others serve him, he died to serve others. And that's the beauty of the gospel. If there's one key to transformation is this, that we die to our old selves and we become new creation. And when I think about the Christian gospel, that's what God does. God takes something that is dead and brings it back to life. So, you know, as I look at these two books, reminds us that is what I call backwards living. In the light of the future, in the light of Christ's second coming, in the light of his establishment of his kingdom, that we are to live in the light of that. So no matter what happens now, that really is secondary to what will happen in the future. And our hope lies in that. And there's an interesting thing about hope. 
that the word hope is always future focused. You don't have hope if the world before you is bleak. You only have hope if you think that there's something that is positive. And we as human beings need hope to survive. And as Christians, we have the ultimate hope. And that ultimate hope is this, that no matter how bad the world becomes, that there is redemption and there is salvation. Built in all of us is what I call this redemptive arc, that we want to see lives made right. We want to see redemption. We want to see things that are fallen rise back up again. Because built into our human nature is a desire for restoration. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what he came to do. To restore our brokenness. Not just to heal our brokenness, but to give us new life in spite of our brokenness. And when you have a future orientation, it changes everything in the present. And the choices we make and how we live. I'll give you one last story. There was a, a group of, of two groups of soldiers on an exercise assignment. And these two soldiers were divided into two camps. One uh, group of soldiers, uh, they had to finish this particular trail, but they were given the map. Or they were given the end destination. This is where the end of the trail was. The other group had no idea. And so these two groups were sent on their way. Exact same sort of kind of, uh, they said, go this way and eventually you'll find it. Well, because the other group knew exactly where the end point was, they finished faster, they had less conflict, and they accomplished their mission very quickly, efficiently. The other group, because they had no idea where the end point was, they fought amongst themselves, they argued, they were more stressed out, and they took a lot longer to accomplish their mission. And when I read that story, it kind of reminded me the reason that we as Christians can have hopeful lives is because God has already given us that box top of what that box top should look like. And that picture is a picture of Jesus. And the more we look like Jesus, every piece of the puzzle of our lives come together. In Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good. For those who love God and called according to his purpose. So we have hope in the midst of bankruptcy. We have hope in the midst of a diagnosis of cancer or leukemia. We have hope in the midst of somebody that we love passing. Because all things are under his control. Let's pray.